welcome to City Legal. Uh, my name is Peter Inch, and it's it's wonderful that you can join us here, whether you're uh, joining from uh, on uh, home online because uh, you have to work at home like a lot of us, or whether you've got a little watch party in a um, office building, or with a group of friends in a cafe, whether you're here physically, uh, you're very welcome. Uh, City Legal is a community that exists to uh, consider the bigger questions of life with silks and suits uh, in cities right around Australia. And uh, we do that by looking at the Bible together. Uh, the format for those of you who are new and a special welcome to you is, is a short talk followed by a Q&A. And um, you can ask questions at any time by actually typing a question at the base of your Zoom screen um, and uh, just uh, selecting either general or the speaker and that question will pop up uh, to us or you can write questions um, on the piece of paper we write it. Now we're very privileged to have speaking for us again today one of the CBF national communicators, David Robertson, and he's going to be addressing us uh, on the book of Joe, uh, on the uh, what hope is there for humanity. So I'm going to welcome uh, David to join us now. Thanks, David. Okay, um, thank you. Good to be with you um, here in Silks or uh, online. Peter, I'm wondering uh, if it might be possible to ask them to turn the music, otherwise you're going to... Oh, it's not coming through. Oh, you're okay. All right. That's fine. Um, we're going to return to the book of Job and uh, Job chapter 14 and 15, looking at something called the... Well, I, I've called it what is humanity. Um, this is quite pessimistic. Uh, there's a an ancient document called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is also known as the Dialogue of Pessimism. And, and I love it. I'm Scottish, and this for me is actually quite cheerful. But it, when you read this, it appears to be very, very pessimistic. So uh, in what we're looking at is chapters 14 and 15, if, you've, uh, if you have a Bible or you can go online and find one. Um, and it's... Job's, one of Job's speeches, followed by the speech of one of his friends, Eliphaz. Um, and it rises this, raises this question of what is man. Now, I want just to go to uh, chapter 14 and uh, verse 17. Sorry, chapter 19. I'm, I'm on the wrong... <coughs> And verse 17. I want to read chapter 19, verse 17. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I'm nothing but skin and bones. I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know there is judgment. 
Now, once uh, that very famous, those very famous verses at the end, uh, we're going to look at those next week. But I want to come back to Job's idea of his breath being offensive to his wife. I'm going back. We're, we're going to really cover several chapters uh, before that, and perhaps best summarized by the question of what is humanity? Uh, I've been reading a, a philosopher called Peter Kreft, and uh, he's a great fan of Pascal. If you don't know who Pascal is, Pascal is the French philosopher, uh, mathematician, theologian. Uh, you may not know this, but he invented the first computer. He also invented the vacuum cleaner, uh, amongst other things. Just a remarkable guy, just tremendously talented, died when he was 39. But he had this great insight into the human condition, which ha remains, I think, fundamentally true. And when we're talking about what is humanity, then he talks about humanity being neither angel or animal. Angel, now, what do you mean by angel? You get that in today's culture, lots of people thinking that angel is, uh, it's kind of pantheism, it's being spirit, it's being one, human beings are fundamentally good, uh, we are at the top of the evolutionary tree, uh, there's nothing really beyond us. It's a very optimistic view of humanity, and if you're watching the events that are going on in uh, America just now, or events basically going on anywhere in the world, I think sometimes you despair of humanity, but that's what people fundamentally believe. Or animal. Animal means that we are just animals, nothing more. So actually reason is removed from us. And at the ultimate level, and I've said this here before many times, uh, those of you who are lawyers would be out of a job if you accept that, because basically you could get a machine, an algorithm to do your job. Reasoning is not essential. Uh, and Pascal says, look, we're not animals and we're not angels. He also says, and this for me is very important, there are two things that humans need. We need truth, which is our head, and we need happiness which is our heart. And he uses happiness, not in the superficial sense that the word happiness is used today, but as deep, profound satisfaction. Now, if I was to work through the chapters on Job that we're missing out because we're covering the book in just uh, four talks, then I think I would take Job 14, verse 1, mortals, or the old translation, man, meaning male and female, man born of woman, is a few days and full of trouble. Well, I think that that is uh, an indication of how many people do feel about life. First of all, Job reflects on the brevity of life. Life is short. Now, here's the interesting thing. Generally, the older you get, the quicker things seem to go. So, um, for me, I find that days go by very, very quickly. I found as a child, sometimes they seem to last forever. Uh, you know the child who's on a car journey, and they're just one mile out of the house. Are we nearly there yet? Well, we find that as we're going on, and we, we realize really just how brief 
life is. Job has an understanding of humanity where he's basically saying woman is frail, and man's frail too because uh, man comes from woman. And you know that, the frailty of a newborn baby. You hold that precious child in your hand and you see how weak and how frail they are and how easily they could be destroyed. Psalm 90 verse 5, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs at new, by evening it is dry and withered. And uh, it's, um, I'm not sure it was Pascal who said this, but someone says Christianity makes you go bold. I'm sure that's not true. Otherwise, there'd be two or three of you here who profess to be Christians who probably are not Christians. Then. That's not how we define Christianity. But one of the things that it does, it gives you a sense of realism. And you may be looking at yourself and you may think, I'm fit and I'm healthy. I'm relatively handsome. I'm sure none of you have that kind of ego. But uh, you're, you're going to wither. That's the way it's going to be. Um, I, this shall remain nameless. This person shall remain nameless, mainly because I don't know their name. But my wife was talking to somebody and they were saying, have you not had Botox? Everyone in the North Shore has Botox. I'm going, okay, um, well, maybe not. Again, looking around me here, and I can't see on the camera, but um, perhaps, uh, perhaps you do have Botox. But what's the point? Why? You, you, you're not going to hold back how we fade. So life is brief, but it's not only frail, it's a few days. Verse 5 of chapter 14 says a pe person's days are determined. There's a boundary, and we cannot go beyond them. And then it says, your life is frail, your life is brief, and your life is full of trouble. Um, he's saying, God's watching us, but it just seems Job, of course, has seen all of this, and he's saying, well, what? he's gone from my life is wonderful, my life is great, my family are doing well, my business is doing well, and he's gone to this, this frailty. And then it gets even worse because... In, throughout Job, one of the things that comes up again and again and again is the finality of death. So in chapter 14, for example, he makes a contrast between man and the trees. And he says there's hope for a tree because when it's cut down, it grows again. But when you die, you're not going to grow again. You're not going to be um, reincarnated. There's a Scottish group. Uh, I'm going to educate you in culture. There's a Scottish group called the Proclaimers. Uh, you may know their song, I Would Walk 500 Miles, and I Would Walk 500 More, they, um, from the film Shrek, which all you cultural aficionados have watched. Uh, and it's, they, are, they speak with very broad Scottish Fife accents, and uh, they have a strong Christian influence upon them. I think one of them professes to be a Christian. And they, they, they have a song, actually, about reincarnation, which when I first heard it, I burst out laughing. Uh, because it says, I don't believe in reincarnation. I'm not coming back as a flower. Um, and that's a very, very interesting, well, reincarnation is a really interesting concept. But here, death is being spoken of as final. Now, that for me is, it, it's just, it's fascinating in the book of Job. It appears as if there's no hope or resurrection. Now, the verses that we read in chapter 19 indicate that there is. Uh, a resurrection, but I struggle to find that. So, yeah. So th th this 
this doctrine of humanity. Now, please don't just switch off in despair at this moment in time. They say on, on the internet that you lose people after about five minutes unless you give them something to, to, you know, to really cling on to. So cling on because it's coming. But it is. Human life is frail, it's brief, and death is final. That, that's what appears to be the case. And what's made worse in that is the absence of hope. So in the whole book of Job's, there are certain metaphors used. For example, the crumbling mountains, the water wearing down the stones. The mountains appear to be forever, and the mountains are sacred, and so on. And so there's a big fuss just now about a mining company um, taking a sacred site, a mountain. But even the mountains fade. That's what Job is saying. It's our hope. What is our hope? Where do we place our hope? And that affects us in so many ways. Job talks about his appearance being affected and the damage that that does. He talks about uh, you change their countenance, again back in chapter 14, and you send them away. Our faces reflect who we are and what we're feeling. So it's been an interesting time for me being here uh, in, in Australia for a year. As I said, time passes by very, very quickly. But the, at the time of the fires, I remember flying in a plane. Remember when we used to be able to do that? Uh, there were planes, and when you flew in them, uh, for the younger generation, you may wonder what that is. Um, if you're watching this in 10 years' time, we had planes, and they flew. Um, anyway, I remember flying a plane from Melbourne into Sydney and coming in and seeing the smoke over the city. And what I saw in people's faces was fear. It was, just, it was quite a remarkable experience to see that. You see in people's faces hatred. You see in people's faces panic. You, you see, I, I was walking um, uh, North Shore Hospital last week. It was just an, for me, it was just an amazing experience because this woman came towards me and she just, her look of, you know, it was like I was Jack the Ripper or something. And she just, she just turned aside and, you know, don't come near me, walk past me. Just the fear. And Job talks about how this impacts. He talks about himself, his breath and everything else. He can't live with his children. He can't share their miseries or joys. Macbeth's final speech says this, man is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There you go, that's your life. Your life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, it's still, we're still building up there, say, Eliphaz, let's talk about Eliphaz and uh, one of Job's friends and the kinds of things, or Bildad, the kind of things he says. And they accuse Job and they attack him of irreverence. They accuse him of arrogance. His words are called windy and arrogant. His guilt makes him speak too much. He, he's saying, look, Job, you're impure, you're unrighteous, you're corrupt. Can't you see God is great? But you're scum. And Job thinks, no, this picture doesn't quite fit. It's not very helpful either. It really doesn't help. 
They also say, Job's friends say, look what's going to happen to you. You're guilty. The wicked man writhes in pain. His years are numbered. He's terrified. The destroyer comes upon him. He, he is he's in darkness. He's destined for the sword. He worries about poverty and lack of food. He'll suffer torture, pain, fear, and guilt. He shakes his fist at God. He's self-indulgent and fat. Um, in the Old Testament, a chubby person, and that's referred to a couple of times in Job, is somebody who symbolizes selfish luxury and spiritual insensitivity. Now, the basic message of Job's friends is, Job's message is, I, I don't get life, it's really rough. His friends are, it's really rough because you're a miserable sinner and you're going to die in misery. And I think the answer to all of this has to be, there must be more to life than this. I want to return to the proclaimers. Uh, they, that Their song, they have another song that goes, the life that I've been living since the day that I drew breath has been my way of forgetting I'm on the journey to my death. Freud saw that. Others saw that. Going back to Pascal and his thoughts on what's involved. I think that uh, this tension within humanity of wanting to know truth but not being able to cope with truth, wanting happiness but not knowing how to get it. So we spend most of our days avoiding the most significant truth of all, that we are frail, that we are weak, that we are going to die, and we are going to meet our maker. See, in life, there are so many good things to enjoy. But at the end of it all, you can't take any of it with you. It's so frail, it's so brief, and therefore seems to be so hopeless. Now, all of this is the Bible teaching. If you read Job, if you read Ecclesiastes, all of this is teaching um, what we would now call existentialist philosophy. It's Albert Camus. I've just been reading Camus' The Plague, which is very, very um, interesting in light of our current situation. And it basically says, what's the point? What is the point? Where is the hope? In chapter 19, that's the answer to the question asked in Job 14, verse 14, if a man dies, will he live again? Now, it's interesting, a lot of scholars, when they look at Job, they go, well, this can't be right because there's a doctrine of personal resurrection here, and the ancients didn't have that. Yet they did. This is the only hope that Job foresees. One of the interesting things about the indigenous culture here in Australia is that um, long before Christianity came to its shores, there was a concept of one creator, and there was also a concept of a life beyond. That seems to be inherent in all humanity. And this is where Job is looking for this. In, in, he talks about how God will long for him. He talks about how God is the only one who can renew him. He talks about how his sin would be sealed up in, in a bag and thrown away. Now, I'm not going to read it, but if you had time, go to Isaiah chapter 40, read the whole chapter, but especially verses 6 to 8 which says, you know, the mountains crumble, the seas fade, everything is destroyed except this. The word of God endures forever. That's why we're looking at it just now. And because of that, that word tells us about the doctrines of resurrection and the judgment to come. And for Christians, we live in the light of the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection is 
our only hope? I, I, I genuinely have this as a question for those of you who are not yet Christians. What is your hope? I spoke to someone fairly recently who, when I first met them, had been quite a strong atheist and is now saying to me, uh, I think, I, I think I've almost become a Christian and it's doing my head in. It's completely turned my world upside down. I can't cope with this. And I said, well, I'm not going to try and calm things down. I'm really, really glad about that. I'm really glad. And he says, Jesus is messing with my head. Because if this is true, it changes everything. And that's the point. So here's our reality. Reality is, and no, nobody watching this, you can't deny this. The reality is, your life is brief, your life is frail, and death is final. You're not coming back, and you're not going to live on, even in your writings. You're not going to live on in, in different ways. And that's it. That really is it. You, you basically better accept Burton Russell's philosophy that you are a blob of carbon moving from one meaningless existence to another. If that's true, you, as Richard Dawkins would put it, you suck it up. That's the way it is. But I know that there's much, much more than that. And this is the other reality. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything that then that proves and that stems for that. You weren't made to die. You weren't made to just fade away. You were made not to be an angel, not to be a beast, but something, if you like, in between. You were made in the image of God, and that image is to be resurrected, renewed, glorified, and spend eternity with him. That's what life is really about, and that's the hope for humanity. Okay, we'll do some questions. Um, and feel free to accept them in. Is accepting the view of humanity as articulated by Job good for us? Okay. Um, if it's true, yes. It depends what you mean by good for us. If you mean by good, does it make me feel better? Well, it depends who you are. So uh, I, sometimes we don't want to face up to reality. You know, but sometimes we have to accept it. I love this question because when we accept this, what's next? Is there any hope? I, I think you've got to ask that question. I think, I think you have got to be honest and ask what actual hope is there? And then I would challenge you to bring me your hope and then allow me to demolish it. Because I think any hope that you have is, is going to be so easily demolished. I mean, where's your hope? I mean, is, is your hope in politicians? I think that should be gone. Is your hope in lawyers? No, no, no. Uh, those of you who are lawyers know that's a hopeless hope. Um, is, your, is, is your hope in, in um, sport? It's one of the interesting things about this COVID-19 stuff is that how so many of things that we place our hope in have gone. Is your hope in your family? Well, what about betrayal and everything else? Is your hope in living forever? You know you're not going to live forever. You know, again, this crisis will remind you that. So we, we look for hope now, but the trouble is we must not look for hope that's false hope. Uh, we, we have to look for something that's real. Uh, how does the hope of the resurrection uh, make our life flourish now because you've got something to live for because you know you're not coming back as a flower as the proclaimers would put it because um, I, I think the easiest way to explain this is, is a friend of mine I, I've told some of you this before but a friend of mine who had muscular dystrophy and who knew he wouldn't live for more than three or four years 
and who once said to me, don't you ever, ever feel sorry for me because I will get out of this wheelchair and I will pr almost certainly be in heaven before you. Um, and I think that that, that that's, in a sense, the Christian hope. For me, the hope is of forgiveness, that I'm being forgiven. For me, the hope is that my life has meaning now. Um, it's a strange thing, isn't it, that people have this idea of Christianity is about pie in the sky when you die. But I prefer the other phrase, that it's really steak on your plate while you wait. Um, because it, it's, you, you can enjoy life so much more when you know that your final destiny is assured and when you're not running away from things. So I, I, I just think it, it, it impacts everything. Why does the book of Job resonate with non-believers? Because it asks the same questions that non-believers ask, and it faces the same issues that non-believers ask. Why is, there, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why do good people suffer, and so on? Um, does the book of Job fully explain why bad things happen to good people? Um, no, because I don't think it intends to. I, I think there's not a direct causal effect. I think what he's saying is, in one sense, it's saying, look, the world's screwed up. Um, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. I would be an idiot if I thought that that meant I was immune from COVID, for example. Oh, Jesus will protect me. Why? What, what, what makes you say, where do you get that from the Bible? So I think that it, it's what the book of Job does. It, it sets it in a broader context. Is Botex def defendable as care for the temple of the body? Okay, I knew I shouldn't have gone there. Honestly, I'll tell you this. Um, I once spoke at a church in the US and mentioned Botox as just an example, because I, I never thought of anyone taking it. And the pastor came out and he said, you're either an incredibly brave man or an idiot. And I said, why? He said, uh, half my congregation have had Botox. I said, I said, oh, you're kidding me. I said, I'm an idiot. He said, yeah, <laughs> I thought so. Um, but is it defendable as care for the temple of the body? Well, how is it caring for the body? I'm not an expert on these things, but I'm told it can actually do you a great deal of harm. It, it strikes me as a fair bit like a vanity project. Um, you know, yes, go for good health, but I'm not sure that Botox puts you in good health. It's, is it not all just about looks? Or, or given we will all wither and die, is it silly to put effort into delaying that process by exercise? No, 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 not at all. You look after the body. It's like saying, hey, you know this? <laughs> it's all going to burn. So I'm just going to let my house go to rack and ruin. No, we're stewards, and we have to care for our bodies. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you have to look after it and care for it. It's interesting, compared with Greco-Roman pagan society, which both worshipped the body and at the same time demonized it, Christianity set up the body as something that is to be treated with dignity. How consumed should we be by the reality of the resurrection? Totally. Um, is human flourishing a worthy or even realistic goal for Christians and or non-Christians? Of course it is. We want people to flourish. We want people to prosper. Um, here's the paradox. And again, Pascal points this out. Can a triangle become untriangular? No, it can't. Can a dog become a non-dog? No. But this is what humans can do. Humans beca can become inhumane. We can go against what God created us to be. 
the that chair that you are sitting on can never be an unchair. It's a chair, and it's the same. But but with us, and what we want is human flourishing. Uh, the, the point I would make is those who are humanists and reject God are not really humanists at all. The strongest humanists are those who are Christians. Can you say something about contemporary identity politics? Yes, it's rubbish. Uh, so, and what it means to be human. Yeah, identity politics seeks identity in a tribe, in a group, in a political opinion. It, what it does is, ironically, although it talks about equality, it goes against equality. So I think, for example, what happened to um, Floyd in, in America was absolutely horrific, and the guy, the policeman who did it, should be prosecuted and so on. But lots and lots of people all over the world are marching for that. But I have a question in my mind. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of Yazidi girls who 10 years ago were raped and murdered. How many of these same people were marching for them? So what, do they not matter? Why we do it? Because it's, an, it's a, we're choosing certain identities. And we do that all the time. And I'm afraid that um, social media make us do that all the more. Um, and I think ide identity politics seeks us to get our identity in a group identity. And what Christianity does, it doesn't take away the idea of groups, but it says ultimately our identity is to be found in our relationship with God. Um, I think identity politics will destroy. I think it's destroying the US, and I think it will destroy Australia unless we um, stop it, basically. And I don't think, by the way, that Christians should join in identity politics in any way. Building on the question about acceptance being God for us, how or why is postmodernism appealing um, as an explanation for life as a source of guidance? Well, look, I'm not sure postmodernism is appealing. Nobody consistently lives as a postmodernist. But insofar as it is appealing, it's because it allows you to make up your own story and your own rules. And therefore, you don't need to work anything else out. You can just go by your instincts. Postmodernism essentially reduces man to an irrational beast. And if you want to live by your instincts, then it will appeal to you. Uh, one could live one's life satisfied in a view that there's no hope of a personal resurrection, but knowing that God's presence and Jesus' life are sufficient to live a good life on earth. Why do I need additional hope? Aren't God and Jesus enough? No, you haven't got God and Jesus if you don't believe in the resurrection. Um, that, that would make... Jesus's life and death and resurrection to be pointless. It would also make God out to be a liar. It would also then mean that you were being idiotic because you were believing in a God who, who wasn't powerful and who lied and wasn't good. And if you want to live your life like that, you live your life therefore in hell, uh, guided and governed by demons. Um, I think it, it's, I think with Christianity, you just, you just get both. You get to enjoy this life, uh, as Pepsi would put it, to the max. Um, and you've got a promise of the life to come. So you're in good health. You enjoy that. You get cancer. You know where you're going. The, 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 the good and the bad always go together and mix together. And so the Christian life is not... Ironically, I began this, and it was so, what is man born of trouble, brief? Oh, you're so miserable. But it's actually the very opposite. Knowing what we are and then knowing what Christ gives is, is extraordinary. And that's why, again, if you're watching this, you're not a Christian. 
And I'm saying to you, you need to get this. You need to grasp this. It is by far, far the most important thing you will ever hear and the best news you will ever get. Any more questions before we're done? Or one more? Okay, we'll do one more. Uh, speaking of Botox, wow, you guys, yeah. yeah. One or two of you, I'm just looking at the select audience around here and maybe they should go out and get an appointment. No. Uh, it can be used for cosmetics, but also to treat neuromuscular conditions. Uh, I, Botox injections, parts of the Can you take any analogies from this duality? Yeah, of course. Everything, almost everything can be used for good and bad. Um, I'm extremely thank you, th thankful for heroin. Uh, because when I was in an incredible amount of pain in hospital, morphine was, you know, having, I mean, I understood a little bit about being an addict, because having that button that you press that just took away the pain was absolutely fabulous. So, I mean, heroin can be used for good. If you know the life of William Wilberforce, uh, of course, opium and so on was considered to be beneficial then, and it's only later they came to realize its addictive uh, properties and the harm it could do. Of course, plastic surgery. I'm not saying to someone who's a plastic surgeon, oh, you're a horrible person, you shouldn't be doing that. Plastic surgery is really important for people who've been badly burned or other things like that. But what I was talking about was the attempt to, to try and have the eternity of youth. You know, it's um, a Canadian writer. Um, I'm trying to remember. It's Doug Copeland. It's just in one of his novels, he talks about how uh, we spend uh, all our youth trying to make money and all our older lives, if you like, uh, spending money to try and retain our youth. Uh, it just doesn't, why do we live in a culture where it's a shameful or a sinful thing to be old? I think it's wonderful. I think when I meet somebody who's like 100 years old or 90 years old or as old as Peter Wrench here, I, I, I just, I, I think, wow. That is utterly brilliant. But we live in this culture as, you know, like, remember when the Who sang, uh, Hope I Die Before I Get Old? And now all these rockers are old and they're not singing that anymore, are they? It's, it's quite remarkable. So, yeah, sorry, that was going off the point a bit. Um, I hadn't really expected to have a Q&A on Botox, but if any of you are Botox experts and you wish to correct me in anything that I've said, feel free to write in. If you've got any complaints, make them to Peter Ringe. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I think, David Robertson, uh, it's wonderful that you could be with us again today and look forward to seeing you same time next week. See you then.